Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury looks at Toronto Mayor John Tory's workplace affair and says lots of problems in situations like that. Two researchers from Halifax look at why women are at greater risk of heart attacks and why women remain undiagnosed so often. Sun columnist Brian Lilly reacts to the Rouleau report that says the government was justified in bringing in the Emergencies Act. And aviation expert John Gradeck hopes our airlines and airports have learned some lessons from the chaos over the holidays. So let's get started. Well, yesterday, last night, as a matter of fact, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, uh, supervised his last meeting. It was a vote on his controversial budget, which he managed to pass, and then he quit. He announced a week or so ago that he had had an affair with a staffer and uh, felt that uh, the right thing to do in the wake of all of this revelation, particularly with the impact on his family, to say nothing of his professional status, was to leave. Uh, and so he has. Uh, our guest, uh, it's always a pleasure to welcome Sidira Chowdhury back to the program. She is a partner with Workly Law, an employment lawyer at the center of the universe, keeping a sharp watch on John Tory and all the other office romance. Sanira, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Now, here I'm quoting, there's an argument that consenting adults enter work romances with their eyes wide open, but it is very difficult to navigate how the dissolution of a relationship can impact a workplace. You went after this John Tory affair with the staffer from a couple of different angles. Let's talk about the power imbalance part first, Sanira. Yeah, you know... Sterling, I've heard a lot of people say to adults in the workplace, they know what they're getting into. Even if you uh, romance your boss, you know what you're doing and uh, all spare, right? Because there are two adults here. But I think we focus on the relationship all too often that's blossoming, meaning all the perks and all the benefits and all the um you know, the good parts of the of the relationship rather than what could happen if the relationship turns sour. So when the relationship is going well, it might be easy to avoid conflicts, right? It might be easy to avoid one another. It might be easy to make sure that any decision-making by the boss might have nothing to do with the subordinate. But when a relationship turns sour, that's when the subordinate employee might feel like, absolutely retaliated against. They might feel isolated. They might feel like they're not getting uh, promotions passing their desk or the benefits that they should be getting. I mean, the, the issue with workplace romances at their core, Sterling, is that how can you ensure that you are treating all employees fairly and consistently, which is a requirement of employment law in this country? I say it's virtually impossible to do. Well, I was just going to say, I don't know who in the workplace after a while doesn't catch a whiff of what's going on and, and understand, oh, yes, well, 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 you know what's going on here. And pretty soon the whole crew knows what's going on. And then, and then right when it goes south, uh, everybody knows that part too. Uh, so there's a lot of observers involved in this situation usually, aren't there? Absolutely. And I talk about that in my column. I talk about even if it's not toxic for the two lovebirds, it can be very toxic for the people around them. Now, especially when there's an extramarital affair component, mm-hmm. we all know at least 
for as outsiders, we assume that people working in any political office, I mean, it's a tight-knit group. Loyalty is at a premium. Um, maintaining public perception of integrity uh, in particular is very important. So you can only imagine the kind of pressure that other staffers that might have known about the, the affair would have felt. They would have felt that they'd have to maintain their loyalty. They might have felt that they had to turn a blind eye. They might have felt that there was something that they should have reported, but that they couldn't report. And you can only assume that that would breed some kind of toxicity, not to mention that if they felt that the staffer who was in the relationship was getting some kind of perk, some kind of advantage, just in light of the, the amount of access she was getting to the mayor, that could turn other co-workers to feel as though they weren't getting the same kind of benefits, the same kind of promotions, the same kind of opportunity. Apparently, in this particular case, this person who was considerably younger than uh, Mr. Tory uh, was involved in travel, for example, which is considered a perk uh, among uh, most workers. If you get to go on a trip with the boss and, and get the, uh, the credit card treatment, nothing wrong with that. I think if we drill down uh, enough... Sterling, taxpayers are probably going to see something that they don't want to see that they paid for. Mm -hmm. Even if, even if we can um, assume, let's say uh, for a moment, that some of this travel was legitimate and part of her job responsibilities. If we start looking at dinners, if we start looking at hotels, if we start looking at other charges as a result of this trip, and mind you, during the COVID pandemic, when most of us were not traveling, we're not doing much more than um, ordering in because we couldn't go to restaurants and things like that. Sure. I mean, the, 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 I think that is going to be that much more um, seen as a conflict if you, if you do drill down. And I think that's exactly what the mayor, or now the former mayor, wanted to avoid, the drilling down. Because I think if you do look into some of these trips, a lot of us are going to feel like, well, there was probably a benefit here. There was probably something um, in addition to access that the staffer got that, that she shouldn't have that placed the, the, the mayor in conflict. Yeah, what uh, what's your your uh, take overall on Mr. Tory's handling of all of this, uh, doing what he sees as or, and has told uh, the citizens of Toronto, the voters of Toronto, that uh, it, it, I have to do this because it's the right thing to do. I've let my family down. I've clearly let my my core constituents down. Uh, the only reasonable thing to do in a situation like this is to step aside, to resign. What did you make of that a tactic? Well, Sterling, you know, being from the city of Toronto, as you know, um, a lot of people are, are upset, frankly, that Mayor Tory is resigning um, and wondering if this was really necessary, especially because this is a former staffer. So certainly the public sentiment is very mixed. It's not as though um, it, people are saying Tory's got to go. No, it's, it's really quite the opposite. But I think in terms of the tactic that Mayor Tory employed here, I think he is savvy enough to know that the ethics commissioner once the Toronto Star had leaked that story, right, once it became public, the ethics commissioner would have 
to drill down and it would tarnish his legacy. It would raise questions about how taxpayer dollars have been spent. And I think it would have been difficult to avoid the finding of some conflict. So I'm not surprised that Mayor Tory went ahead with the resignation, even though there were some rumblings as to whether or not he might turn it around and, and remain as mayor. I think he made the right choice here because I don't think if we kept drilling down into the details, we would find in his favor. Back to your column, if you don't mind for a second, because you're making it a difference here between a power imbalance relationship in the workplace where one is clearly a superior and the other clearly a subordinate. That's different or is it this is the question between two co-workers who are perhaps even on the same level in terms of seniority and management uh, uh, designation that sort of thing is there a difference i think there's an absolute difference i think many of your listeners um, would have the experience of potentially being in a romantic relationship uh, and a public one at that with a co-worker yeah. I and mean, i don't think that is all too unusual, especially because one doesn't have any relative power over the other. But the moment that even if there's not a direct reporting relationship, but the moment uh, that there is a relationship that exists between a subordinate employee and any superior employee that might have some influence over the promotion, um, over the compensation, over the job opportunities of the subordinate employee, it is never a good idea. Never. I think this is a great example of that. This is this is a staffer who's not even at the City of Toronto any longer, right. and it's still a bad idea. But there's an absolute difference, I think, when you have any appearance of bias, any appearance of being able to influence the outcome, the career of that subordinated employee, even if it's not direct, that is always um, a dangerous zone to be living in. Indeed it is. Sunira, great column, by the way. It's entitled, Romance in the Mayor's Office Created a Conflict. I picked it out of the Vancouver province just a couple of days ago. Thanks for this. Always a pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, my friend. A very important piece at theconversation.com caught our eye the other day. It's entitled, Dying to be Seen, Why Women's Risk for Heart Disease and Stroke is Still Higher Than Men's in Canada. It's co-authored by our next two guests. Jackie Gahagan is a full professor and associate vice president of research at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. Shannon Grant is an associate professor and registered dietitian, also at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. Professor Gahagan, Jackie, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you with us. And Shannon will join us in just a second. There's a, a Shannon's on the line too. Shannon, thanks for joining us. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Thanks, Sterling. Well, that's very timely of you to make it just under the wire there, Shannon. <laughs> the Heart and Stroke Foundation, uh, ladies, has a tremendous ad campaign going on. Last night, we were watching the hockey game, and it came on during the game, and it features a series, a collage of women speaking directly to camera, one of whom says, I went to the hospital not feeling well they sent me home and I had a stroke three hours later and I was pregnant and another woman says a similar horror story about she was basically uh, neglected overlooked and went on to have uh, a heart uh, situation and my wife Carol turned to me at one point and she said you know it's true so why is it true Jackie let's start with you why is there this imbalance what's going on 
Well, I'd say there's a, there's a couple of key issues to keep in mind, Sterling, and I think first and foremost is treating women like men. So in terms of symptoms or diagnoses, we know that women's symptoms are more subtle and often can be misdiagnosed or, or perhaps in some instances um, considered sort of an emotional issue rather than a physiological issue, hmm. such as um, someone who is re- really um, suffering from uh, a heart attack or having symptoms of a heart attack and having those go unrecognized. So that's a huge part of the, the conversation, part of the problem. Okay. And Shannon, does it matter that a lot of the physicians that these women are seeing with their heart conditions are, in fact, women? Um, at the end of the day, I really think it comes down to a, like a comprehensive assessment and ensuring you make space um, for people to communicate their concerns effectively. Um, and I do believe that healthcare providers are, are aiming to improve always in terms of the way they ask questions, listen to their patients. But I do think we have a long way to go to be inclusive, given the diversity of people that make up our country. Mm-hmm. But I do think the points you brought up, really, I tend to I tend to describe them as a perfect storm. And um, Jackie's touched on a couple of key issues, but I'm happy to speak to more if you want to ask about them. Well, you talk about two-thirds of the research that's been done in this whole file has historically excluded women as participants Mm -hmm. even. So again, this this goes back, I would imagine, to the beginning of intensive research into heart disease. Absolutely. So we know that research funding and research priorities have historically not included women. So women who are having menstrual cycles, might be becoming pregnant, etc., have been historically removed from clinical trials. And that means we're basing a lot of our um, diagnoses and treatment on the male model. And that is, a, that is a significant problem. The other piece that's really important to keep in mind, Sterling, is not only the exclusion of women from clinical trials, but also women's historical absence from research funding decision-making. So in other words, who's actually looking at gaps in data? And if it's not women saying, hey, just a second here, if women are being systematically excluded from the research, what does that mean for our health outcomes when it comes to heart and stroke? Absolutely. Okay, Shannon, I'm sorry. I completely agree. No, I completely agree. The birth control issue is a prime example. I've worked in clinical trials for over 20 years. And um, until recently, women were often excluded if they were on birth control, if they had, you know, hormone replacement therapy, etc. And we do know that the hormones are a key component of the um, increased risk we see in women, especially at older ages, as they mature and become more seasoned. So hormone uh, therapy is a very customary or fairly commonplace in terms of women, especially as they age. So if women are are, uh, undergoing some kind of hormone therapy protocols, have they been automatically excluded from research because they're they're on something that may uh, adversely or influence the outcome in an unknown way? Well, it really comes back to, I think, the idea of... um you know, traditionally things that might impact the research question are excluded. And uh, birth control pills are my my favorite example because they are a hormone replacement. Yeah. They are a hormone that impacts um, women's metabolic system, etc. Um, but we do know that oral contraceptives, especially high-dose estrogen or estrogen only, can increase your risk of blood pressure, blood clots significantly, especially if you have other risk factors such as being over 35, have migraine, etc. 
So um, it's a big issue. I agree with Jackie completely. So, Jackie, what? Uh, let's just move this forward a little because you, it's a very good article that you two have put together. It's really worth a read. I commend it to my listeners, and I'll, recommend, I'll give you the title again in a second. But let's move forward on this. How does this get fixed? How does and this? It's this an excellent campaign going on by the Heart and Stroke Foundation. A lot of Canadians are going, wow, didn't know that. How can we fix it? Yeah, that's a really great question, Sterling, and I, and I agree with you that Heart and Stroke has done an amazing campaign, and hopefully it will increase people's awareness, both, uh, you know, just the average woman on the street, but also healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So a couple of kind of key concrete recommendations include we need to see more research and research funding on women's health broadly, and that would include women's heart and stroke research. So that's, a, I think, a doable ask uh, and something that I think we need to consider. The other thing that is really important is how we are training the next generation of healthcare providers mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. really important. They need to hear this message. They need to understand when they see a patient in front of them, what does that mean in terms of their, of their relative risk for heart disease or stroke? And we know the data, the data are there and we need to actually make sure that that finds its way into clinical conversations uh, and how we actually provide training for the next generation of healthcare providers. Anything else to add there, Shannon, at all? Um, Just to reiterate, the key component is assessment, making as much time and space as as we can for patient or person voice so that we can get to the bottom of any issue. Cardiovascular disease, because it is a silent killer in many cases, um, needs that type of attention. Um, And especially because women traditionally, because of, you know, conceptions or perceptions of how women who are stressed out or that have concerns or might seem, you know, agitated, they tend to be labeled as or not heard or, you know, overstepped. So it's important that we make time and space for them to express their concerns. Yeah, according to the report, and you mentioned this in your article, women are generally unaware of their individual yeah. risk and risk factors and are often therefore underdiagnosed and obviously undertreated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a really important thing to keep in mind as well, and it's uh, in it's in the existing data. But we know that fewer women are likely to get into cardiac rehab. So even a woman who has mm-hmm. been diagnosed and treated for a heart attack, um, they are less likely to avail themselves of cardiac rehab, and that mm. is also an indicator of a subsequent heart. Uh, heart attack or um, mm-hmm. poor health outcomes following a heart attack. And so we need to also look at the gendered component of why it is that women having had a heart attack are less likely to get either referred to cardiac rehab or less likely to be able to utilize cardiac rehab. And I think that's an important issue we can certainly deal with going forward. Professors Gahagan and Grant, Jackie and Shannon, it's a terrific article. Dying to be seen, why women's risk for heart disease and stroke is still higher than than men's in Canada, friends. It's at theconversation.com. It is a very worthwhile read. Thank you both for this this morning. I hope to have the opportunity to do this again. Thanks. Thank you, Sterling. Take care. Here's a piece from uh, the uh, most recent article by our next guest. Quote, Canadian air travelers can finally breathe a sigh of relief. The chaos at airlines and airports appears to be finally over, allowing travelers to once again take to the skies without frustrating delays and cancellations. But... 
How long will this relief last? Spring break and the corresponding surge in holiday travel are just around the corner. The article is called After Months of Chaos and Disruption. Has the Canadian commercial aviation industry learned its lesson? The author is a good friend of this show. He is the faculty lecturer and program coordinator in supply chain, logistics, and operations management at Montreal's McGill University. He is Professor John Gradeck. John, good morning. Welcome back. Hey, certainly a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's good to have you back with us. Will Canadian commercial aviation prove to have learned its lesson from the last seven months of delays, cancellations, mishandled baggage, and miscommunication? And if it hasn't, John, how can Canadians better prepare ourselves for potential disruptions down the road? Well, it looks like the industry is saying that it has learned its lesson. The proof, of course, will be in the pudding, as they say, mm-hmm. what, spring, what spring break is going to look like, particularly in Vancouver. And I'm just holding my breath that Mother Nature does not pull any fast stunts on Vancouver Airport, as it did around Christmas time, as we all remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, so holding my breath that Mother Nature kind of holds off any wrath that it has on, on the Vancouver Airport for beyond our spring break. Um, but I, I'm I'm pretty sure that you know, I've seen enough sampling of what some of the airlines have done to kind of redress some of their issues that they've had. You know, I've seen WestJet basically look at, you know, reducing their services uh, and, and, and then looking at trying to focus in on their Western Canadian operations right. rather than try to be a, a national carrier. You've seen Sunwing kind of retrench and cancel flights uh, to kind of put everybody's uh you know, heartbeats back in order because of all the stuff that they did over Christmas. Um, the jury's still out as to whether Air Canada really has uh, learned its lesson. I think that's where my concerns are at this point in time. I think Air Canada is still really very focused on trying to maximize, you know, the capacity that it has, right. maximizing revenue and trying to get as much money as it possibly can. Spring break is the next opportunity. Uh, and I'm not sure, and I haven't seen any evidence that the, that, that kind of supports that they really have scaled back their operational plan to reflect the need for some flexibility and resiliency in their schedule. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not sure about Air Canada. How about, how about as a starting point, Air Canada particularly, but all the airlines, John, how about as a starting point, we, we accept the reality, we the traveling, the flying public, accept the reality that the, air, the aviation industry is dealing with a serious shortage of staff. There are fewer pilots than there are planes and flights scheduled and so on. But can we at least going forward, John, be reasonably assured that the airlines are only going to schedule flights for which they have crews rather than scheduling flights crossing their fingers that maybe they'll have a crew and away you go well that's going to be the big uh, $64,000 question um, you know I think that you know the airlines if you look at the results in Air Canada announced yesterday uh, in terms of their year-end report and looking at the fourth quarter you know they were all you know proud of themselves that they've got maximum utilization of their fleet. They've got lots of passengers on their airplanes. They've got load factors in the 80s. Um, but nowhere do I see in that report, nowhere do I see any mention whatsoever of a couple of very important issues that I think are on top of Canadians' minds when they fly on the airlines in Canada is on-time performance, yep. flights, flights completion, not a peep, not a mention of any of that in their report. And then the other piece was customer service. 
And, you know, what are they doing about trying to put together a plan that basically allows for people to see how, how are they doing with respect to answering people's comments on the phone, you know, people's requests on the phone, staying on the phone four or five hours, waiting for somebody to be answered, your call to be answered. It's not an, that's not customer service. Right. And I think, you know, I don't see any publication. And then the other thing is that, you know, the, the APPRs, the airport, air, air passenger protection rights bill is still out there and that, you know, the airlines are still fighting it. Air Canada and WestJet and the rest of the crews, you know, have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of compensation re- requests that are currently in the pipeline right. with the CTA. And there's no provision being made by the airlines to, in fact, put money aside to pay for those compensation claims. So there's a couple of things that are kind of weird in terms of what I see coming out in terms of financial results from the airlines. Well, remembering the the chaos at YVR here in Vancouver over the holidays, the, the it was all compounded enormously, John, by the lack of communication, that customer service element that you just discussed. The fact was that there were thousands and thousands of people who had absolutely not a single clue what was going on. And I think that, you know, to me... If there's a lesson to be learned, that's the one. I think that the last time that happened was about four or five years ago in Ottawa when we had those four or five air transat flights that were hanging around the airport for about four or five hours in the in the summer heat. And the government reacted to that fairly quickly by bringing forth things like the APPRs. And I, I, I find the, you know, the silence that I hear from the regulators about what happened in Vancouver, which was, to me, unconscionable to keep people on the airplane for 10 or 12 hours, you know, when you have gates available to you, you know, 15 or 20 meters away, mm-hmm. that, that should have gotten some, some, some alarm bells going in, in Ottawa, at least, uh, if not in the headquarters of these carriers, that, you know, it's, something is wrong. That, that should never have been allowed to happen. And, you know, the reaction of the government four years ago to Air Transat was, was, was good. The inaction on the part of the government for what happened in Vancouver is just, you know, unconscionable. Only a few seconds left here. John, what's one thing the feds can do to improve things in time for spring break and travel beyond? Cross their fingers. <laughs> Cross do, their fingers. Do, it's too late. It's too late. Flights are booked. Passengers have got their tickets. I just hope passengers have bought some all-risk insurance and they've got their uh, air tags in their bags because it's gonna, those are two things you're going to need. Well, unfortunately, there are still people looking for their suitcases from Christmas. <laughs> You're not exactly inspiring oodles of confidence for the spring break crowd either. But, you know, face yeah. facts. And I think we are quite realistic about our prospects and traveling this summer. And a lot of us are pretty leery, don't you think? I think so. I think Canadians basically are saying, you have to prove it to me, industry, airline industry, that you have changed your behaviors, you've changed your operating plan to reflect the need for higher levels of customer service. That, to me, is the proof is going to be in the pudding. And we're going to let, you know, I'm going to let the, you know, the first few months of the summer go by to see how well the lessons of the past have been uh, incorporated into their plans. And uh, I'm, I'm holding my breath. Indeed. After months of chaos and disruption, has the Canadian commercial aviation industry learned its lesson? A terrific piece at theconversation.com by John Gradeck from McGill University in Montreal. John, terrific article, and thanks for an extra few minutes this weekend to flesh it out on the radio. My pleasure, Sterling. Have a great day. Take you- care. In this morning's Toronto Sun, the Brian Lilly column reads, Rouleau gives Trudeau a pass on the Emergencies Act. 
with reluctance. The author of the column, Brian Lilly from Post Media, joining us now. Brian, good morning. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. My apologies if you hear a bit of background noise. I'm, I'm just leaving the Toronto uh, Auto Show where I was uh, checking out the uh, Project Arrow all-Canadian electric car. Ah, and impressed? Absolutely impressive, and so are a lot of the other vehicles here. Interesting stuff. We'll get back to that in a minute. Let's talk about the Emergencies Act. You and I have talked about this on this uh, program uh, more than once uh, since it was invoked uh, back a few months ago. The 2,000-page uh, report of Justice Paul Rouleau says, with reluctance, yeah, I guess it was okay. That's hardly a ringing endorsement, is it? It's not. Uh, look, he did say that the government met the threshold, but he said he arrived at that conclusion with reluctance. He said that the body of evidence before him was not overwhelming and that uh, reasonable and informed people could arrive at a different conclusion. That was all in his opening statement. Right. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like the teachers uh, you know, said to me sometimes when I was in high school, I'll give you a 51. Just don't take this course next year. Right. Uh, <laughs> a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. And memories of Sister Mary uh, telling me if I, if I, she passed me in French, uh, uh, if I promised not to come back, that sort of thing. So the justice says they met the threshold, but he has doubts uh, and a reluctance to arrive at that conclusion. So reasonable and informed people could easily arrive at a different conclusion. So uh, he does, however, agree that the threshold was met, even though there is uh, such an abundance of evidence to show that none of the police agencies involved who couldn't seem to coordinate much between themselves, at least in terms of informing the government, none of those agency said this is a crisis we need an emergencies act for yeah and that definitely did happen i mean even rcmp commissioner brenda lucky who's announced her retirement just before the report came out Mm -hmm. uh, she had informed the government that uh, there was a plan in place to remove the uh, the protesters that uh, uh you know with the rcmp and the ontario provincial police assisting ottawa police because it was ottawa police who were responsible for this but they were doing a horrible job once those other police forces came in, lent their uh, both their, their their personnel and their planning that she told them before they invoked the Emergencies Act that there was a plan and that they had the tools to do the job. The government still went ahead. You know, I'm one of the informed and reasonable people who comes to a different conclusion mm-hmm. uh, than Justice Rulo. Now, I don't think that his position is unreasonable. I simply disagree with it. Um, but the reason that I disagree with it comes down to uh, how you interpret the act. And, in, uh, you know, the government uh, used the, their position as saying uh, that they didn't have to use the definition of what constitutes a threat to national security, which is required given the type of emergency they invoke. Right. That um, they, they didn't need to use the definition that's in the CSIS Act. Uh, that ceases doesn't decide what is and isn't an emergency. And my view is, well, you're right, ceases doesn't decide, but the legislation says you have to use the definition that is in the ceases act. They disagreed with that. Justice Rouleau granted them that. And he also called for the act to be amended to put the definition in. Right. My big worry, Sterling, is that... Um, you know, I, I, I don't disagree that the, the act needs to be amended, 
But I just want to make sure that there is a clear and strict definition of when the government uh, can and should invoke an emergency. Because we hear all the time in, in the United States, a governor or a president or a mayor has invoked a state of emergency mm-hmm. to deal with a flood or some natural disaster. That's not what this is. This was the government granting itself extraordinary powers, sweeping powers. It was the government suspending civil liberties. Now, they claim that that's not the case, that the act is charter compliant. Uh, sure, but so is the notwithstanding clause that removes civil liberties. Um, you know, when, when governments invoke that, uh, it's still charter compliant. The Emergencies Act uh, restricted how and where people could travel, yep. where they could go to launch a protest. You could not go to Parliament Hill to protest anything while that act was on. Well, that's suspending charter rights. You don't want to do that without a high threshold. You don't want to give the government the ability to say, the charter doesn't matter anymore. Your rights and freedoms don't matter anymore until we say they do. You don't want to give them that power except under extraordinary circumstances with strict limitations on when and where. And so if they're going to amend the act, it's got to be strict. The people that passed this act in the 80s did it in a way that was strict because they felt that the War Measures Act, which it was replacing, right. was had been abused mm-hmm. and was open to abuse. So they, they, they wanted guard, serious guardrails in there. That needs to stay in place. Well, it's the freezing of the bank accounts as much as anything else that really kind of freaked a lot of Canadians out in terms of overstepping their mark uh, and uh, attacking those who would disagree. Uh, The other thing that happened in the Rouleau report was the singling out of the Ford government and the province of Ontario for unwillingness to participate at certain levels. In fact, the premier, Mr. Ford, and his attorney general refused to even testify at the commission. So was that a political thing, or was there, an, was there a point to be made about provincial participation? I, I found it a bit bizarre that the Ford government was taken to task almost more than the, the Trudeau government. Right. This was a federal act. Um, this was a federal inquiry. I, I can tell you that the, uh, the province of Ontario was engaged at the officials' level, and what they refused to do was take part in this bizarre thing called the tripartite table. So, yeah, look, the dealing with the protest was a city of Ottawa issue. Their police service, they had hired a guy named Peter Slowly to be chief. Right. He was hailed as a, an advocate of progressive policing, and he was going to change the way policing was done. And this was uh, of great joy to the people who lived in downtown Ottawa and the neighborhoods that surrounded it until they saw what progressive policing was. And then they wanted heads bashed in by the cops. They wanted the protesters arrested, beaten, gone, um, you know, which was not what Slowly was doing. But so the failure was at Ottawa police. It was at the Ottawa city level mm-hmm. for not managing this. They're responsible. And at a certain point, as the officials are working behind the scenes, the bureaucrats, the federal liberals decide to work with the liberal mayor of Ottawa at the time, Jim Watson, to have these meetings that they would hold over Zoom and broadcast on TV. And Premier Ford said, I'm not doing that. His attorney general said, I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Let's actually do work instead of holding meetings. That, that was the only part they didn't participate in. So I, I find the, the focus on the Ford government odd. 
They had the attorney general's office, the solicitor general's office. They had the OPP. They had the, uh, the assistance they needed. The, the, the ultimate failure was at the local level in terms of police just deciding not to do their jobs. You take your last statement in your article, which you just obviously wrote in the wake of the report released yesterday, is the quote, Trudeau can't be allowed to use this report to make it easier to grant himself special sweeping powers in the future. Close quote. Uh, he's already gone on and made some uh, uh, attempt to apologize to people he called names for disagreeing with him uh, and really starting pouring gasoline on the fire in those days. Uh, uh, do you think that there is uh, there is an element of truth to what you say in terms of, gosh, those sweeping powers sure were fun while I had them? Well, it, it was good to see him admit that he made a mistake yesterday. I haven't seen that from him before. He's been asked about that. Did your over-the-top language contribute to what happened? And he said yes, and he wishes he'd not done that. Mm-hmm. So that was good to see. If he'd had a bit more of that a year ago, maybe we wouldn't have ended up there because that's one of the things Justice Rulo said. Um, but, you know, the report does call for changes and amendments to be made. And, the uh, you know, my, my point in that last line is, uh, sure, make amendments, but don't make this something that governments want to whip out, as Justin Trudeau might say, whip out any time they, they feel they need to, to deal with a protest they don't like. No question about it. Brian, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for taking time out of the car show. What a trooper to join us on the radio this morning to talk about the emergency sack. Good to have you with us. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.